0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can.
2: Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot.
1: Countrywide.
2: 30,000
3: tonnes a week, something like
4: that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your
3: ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm.
1: Countrywide,
4: the
0: politics of food and farming. On ABC Radio.
4: Hello,
5: Kit Mockin with you here. Great to have your company on Countrywide this week. Hope you're having a good one wherever you're tuning in from. You might know that Australia is the biggest producer of wool in the world, but did you know that just 5% of that wool is processed here at home?
3: The remainder of that wool is exported in a greasy form, and around about 80% of the wool that we produce goes to China.
5: You're going to hear about a plan to turn that around in just a bit. Also, imagine having to take a 400 kilometre detour. That's right, not four, not 40, 400 kilometres.
0: We've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things. But this is certainly shaping as the biggest weather event I've dealt with in my time here.
5: You're going to hear from a trucking company dealing with a logistics nightmare due to the floods on the East Coast. But first, are you looking forward to a glass, or maybe two, of Prosecco this festive season? The Australian-grown version of the bubbly is so popular that its sales outstrip its pricey French cousin. Of course, I'm talking about champagne. But that could all be about to change, as Aussie wine producers are fighting to retain the name, which Italy now wants exclusive use of. ABC Goulburn Murray's rural reporter, Annie Brown, has been following the hubbub this week. She joins me on the line now. So Annie, you've been keeping tabs on this story. It's been around for a while, I think since 2018. So that's five years. This isn't the first time that this story about Prosecco has made headlines either. What's the urgency? What's the new bit? That's
6: right, Kit. So yeah, this is not the first conversation we've had about Prosecco, the name of Prosecco potentially being taken away from winemakers here in Australia, but it's come up again in the news this week because a group of uh, Prosecco producers from Victoria's King Valley, so a wine region just outside of Wangaratta uh, here in Victoria that produces a lot of Prosecco. They've headed to Canberra this weekend with a few cases of bubbly uh, to try and lobby some of the politicians into hearing their side of the story and hopefully protect the name and retain the use of the name here in Australia. So they met with a bunch of um, ministers as well. They met with the Trade Minister, Don Farrell. They met with the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, and also the Shadow Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud, this week. And this was all facilitated by, I should mention, their local... The local member for King Valley, which is the independent member for Indi, Helen Haynes. So she sort of brought the winemakers to Canberra and introduced them to a bunch of the ministers here to sort of get their point across this week.
5: It's not a bad product to be able to take to Canberra.
6: Prosecco.
5: So what are they actually upset about? What is Italy asking for in this free trade uh, negotiation that's got them in a bit of bother?
6: So it's one of the conditions that they've put forward for the EU free trade agreement with Australia and they want to, so Italy is trying to claim exclusive rights over the name Prosecco. So a bit similar to how Champagne winemakers in the French region, they have a monopoly on the name of, uh, under the rules of appellation. it's called, so it can only be called that if it's made from the Champagne region. Uh, But the winemakers here in Australia are sort of stating their case to say that the difference between champagne and Prosecco really in this instance is that champagne is a method. So it's sort of named after the region, but it's a method that they're also trying to protect, whereas Prosecco is the name of the grape variety. So a lot of their argument also comes back to the fact that if you ban the use of the name Prosecco outside of Italy, does that also mean that other grape varieties will also be banned as well? So that could be, you know, things like Chardonnay, uh, Cab uh, all kinds of wines that are known as their grape variety name. So that's the one major point they're putting forward at the moment. Uh, also, um, I should mention that the King Valley, you know, they produce a lot of Prosecco. They're quite well known for being, you know, Prosecco makers in Australia. And Victoria, I think, produces... The majority, over 50% of Australia's Prosecco here, and a lot of that does come out of the King Valley and also in the northeast in Miloa. So, we're talking about vineyards that people might know of, like Brown Brothers, Del Zotto, and Pizzini wines, and they were all the, the families that went to Canberra this week. And they're also obviously worried that. If you ban the name Prosecco, they're going to see a lot of loss uh, you know, in their returns as well. They've spent a lot of money marketing Prosecco. They've spent a lot of money putting in infrastructure to grow more and produce more Prosecco. Uh, so if we change the name and we lose that, they're worried that a lot of their sales will go down. Uh, I should also mention that the alternative name that Italy has put forward, so if it does go forward and we do lose the right to use the name Prosecco here in Australia, the other name it could go by is Glira, which is another name for the grape variety. Uh, and the winemakers here are saying, no, we don't want to call it Gliera. It doesn't quite sound <laughs> as good as Prosecco. Okay.
5: I was about to ask you about that because I, I have heard some reaction that it does sound like a bit of a dud name. like Glera.
6: Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's sadly not quite, it hasn't got quite the same ring to it. It doesn't feel as nice to say as "prosecco, which is a beautiful word to even just say out loud, so yeah, they're obviously not happy about that, and I guess unfortunately, when it comes to these things, you know, if um it'd probably take a lot of edu- re-education for the consumer to you know, even though it's the same product, maybe people are are going to be less likely to pick up a bottle of clearer than a bottle of Prosecco. They might not understand that it's the same. Thing, essentially,
5: So you mentioned that uh, in your patch, uh, Prosecco has got a, a long history and is pretty established. Just how long does that stretch back? Like when did people in Australia start buying uh, Prosecco varieties and, and growing them?
6: So I think um, in the King Valley, it stretches back about 20 or so years ago, and um, Del Zotto, Otto um, Del Zotto, who's one of the, the the owner of Del Zotto Wines, I think he was the first um, winemaker in Australia to plant and grow Prosecco. Um, so it goes back, you know, only maybe a couple of decades or so here in Australia, but it's got a bit of a, a long history in the King Valley, and they've really sort of established that as their... They're sort of marketing, yeah, for their wine region. There, it's you know synonymous with Prosecco. It's what a lot of people come to the King Valley to, to try and to drink and to enjoy. So I guess to to lose out on that name would be a huge, huge. It would have huge economic impact for them because it would sort of have to they have to change everything about it.
5: And did they get a warm reaction from Canberra? Was it? Did, did they get any, you know, insight into how uh, how the negotiations are going? Well, I'm not really sure.
6: I mean, I would be pretty happy if someone rocked up to my office with a case of Prosecco, um, <laughs> tried to convince me that it was a good idea to keep the name. But uh, it sounds like it, it went well. I mean, it's a pretty easy sell, really. Um, and I guess they're all waiting anxiously now. And, you know, I spoke to um, Alfred Pazzini. He's the owner of Pazzini Wines and long wi- long-term long winemaker from the region. And, he said the reason, like they're really they've gone back to Canberra because this is not the first time they've been to Canberra to sort of lobby the the government on this issue. Um, but the reason they've gone back now is that it's going to they're expecting it to wrap up in the next six months these negotiations. So they're really trying to put forward their final say on what they want to get across and hopefully try to convince the politicians to to fight for the name Prosecco.
5: And um, just finally, just to play devil's advocate. You touched on a couple of them there before. Uh, French champagne, uh, Scottish scotch, although I think that's out with Brexit. Uh, We've got feta cheese. What are the arguments for geographic indicators? Because the EU has really pursued a lot of these food ones. We've heard a lot about them. Can you see a, um, a reason why they'd have them?
6: I guess it's really just protecting their own market, really. So if you're the only place that sells Prosecco, and everyone knows Prosecco for, you know, its name, you're more likely to, yeah, take over, like, establish more of that market. So I guess it's really just to try and protect their farmers and really try and, you know, protect their name of their sales. I think, yeah, with champagne and manuka honey, you know, there's, there's so many examples of this isn't there where people where countries are trying to really just protect their their brand of uh you know whatever it is that they're producing and i guess also try and keep that keep that part of the market for themselves so
5: which is sort of i guess the antithesis of what a free trade deal would be trying to achieve i guess yeah
6: (laughs) yeah i guess so yeah but yeah we'll see what happens i mean it's It'll be interesting to see. I mean, if there's ways around it even where you don't have to call it glera, maybe. Maybe there's a, a compromise here. and Maybe it just has to be labeled Australian Prosecco. I don't know if that's that's a, a bit better. Um, I know Alfred <laughs> Prasini said they won't accept that either. They just want Prosecco. Um, but perhaps there's a compromise here where everyone can win out in some
5: way. Well, I'm sure everyone will be thinking of it. Uh, this Christmas could be the last to open a bottle of Prosecco at the dinner table. Thanks, Annie, so much for speaking to me. Thanks, Kit. ABC, Goulburn, Murray, rural reporter Annie Brown speaking to me there.
1: Countrywide,
0: the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio.
5: Great to have you along today. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. While we are on the subject of free trade, in slightly less contentious news, agreements with the United Kingdom and India passed the Australian Parliament this week. This means that farmers will now face fewer taxes on their goods to those countries, but it also comes with a few potential downsides. Here is Independent MP Bob Catter speaking on the decision to scrap the 88-day rural work requirements for UK backpackers to extend their visas.
1: The heart and soul of our backpacker industry which is our fruit picking industry are the young people from ireland from scotland from wales from england and they comprise spine of our picking workforce um we lost it during covid we desperate to get it back and we find out that this piece of incredible stupidity um is not going to restore those people.
5: So what impact will it have at a local level and possibly on the fruit and veg you're picking up at the shops? David Shorten is the Regional Development Officer for the Bowen Gumloo Growers Association, a region that supplies the largest amount of winter fruit and veg crops in Australia. Mr Shorten says a lack of UK backpackers won't have much of an impact as compared to previous seasons
1: we do rely on on transient workers coming through especially around our uh, picking season for, for vegetables and for mangoes but to be honest this year we've noticed a much broader diversity of backpackers coming in not so much the english um, and previous legislation has diluted the 88-day requirement to now include other sectors such as um, aged care and Um, hospitality. So to be honest, we haven't noticed, uh, we won't notice a a big change in terms of um, England specifically um, not coming up to this region to work.
7: UK backpackers have always kind of been a a big part of the fabric of regional and rural Australia. So if we're seeing less of them in those communities, what are you guys relying on nowadays?
1: Yeah, so they, they, you're right, they absolutely have been integral to the farming communities throughout Australia. And there was a time prior to COVID where we were reliant on the English backpackers coming into the country to really fill that void where Australian workers weren't interested in. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've, we've started to take on a lot more uh, Pacific Island workers and they're the mainstay now of our industry especially in North Queensland, uh, and they, they come from a range of different countries, including uh, Samoa, uh, Timor East, uh, Papua New Guinea um, and a few others in that region. So we're, we're finding that they're taking up the, the gap that's been um, taken away, I guess, from COVID and, and international travel.
7: The ag visa was created to potentially fill this gap of the scrapping of the 88 days for the UK mm-hmm. backpackers, that too has been scrapped. So do regional and rural communities just have to look to themselves and, and retain workers as best they can by capitalising on what it has to offer?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. We, we've we spent a large part of this year trying to bring uh, new people into our communities and, and we're very lucky that we have the Sundays as part of our attraction campaign and we found that we've got a lot of people that are interested in in the lifestyle and, and the work that is in this region and so rather than relying on backpackers to come into the community for a very short window to help pick um, where we're trying to get a much broader group of people to come into the region um, including people that are looking to set up and stay in the community and we're finding that that's a a much better option long term um, than relying on backpackers to potentially turn up or not turn up. And obviously they're being complemented by the Palm uh, Pacific Island working scheme that we've also got.
7: With all this discussion about backpackers and a workforce that we obtain from overseas, how is Bowen Gumloo doing in terms of numbers? Do you guys have enough at such a crucial time of year?
1: We were... As a region, we were certainly short uh, a few hundred people. There's no doubt about that. And um, speaking to other regions, they were, you know, they were equally short-staffed throughout the the critical times. Um, and I guess one of the things that we're looking at is we're looking at new U- new ag technology, um, automation, and robotics as an opportunity to actually take. Um, some of those vacancies and some of those positions that aren't turning up um, and try and automate them so that we can fill that gap of critical employees.
5: David Shorten, the Regional Development Officer for the Bowen Gumloo Growers Association, speaking there with Lucy Cooper. I'm Kit Mocken. You're listening to Countrywide. Now, I want you to cast your mind back six months ago. Pretend you're in the shops and you're trying to buy an iceberg lettuce. Anyone who tried to do that at that time knows firsthand the havoc that floods can wreak on the supply chain and your wallet. Now, after weeks of renewed flooding, trucking companies are sounding the alarm about how difficult it is for them to move freight around the country. Flooding has caused key transport routes, including the Sturt Highway around Hay, to close, and many other roads are badly damaged. GTS Freight Management's national operations manager Ben Fenner told Kelly Hollingworth, "It's a huge logistical challenge.
0: We've the Sturt Highway closed to all traffic west of Hay, uh, meaning there's significant diversions in place to Sydney and Brisbane um, from Mildura and Adelaide, which was predominantly where we operate out of. Um, generally, our trucks operate via the new highway. However, however we're now heading south of Baronald uh, across to Deniliquin." Up into Wagga and on to Brisbane for there, adding about 400 kilometres um, traf- uh, travel time. I should say for one way, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty challenging.
2: Have you ever come across anything like this before in the time that you've been in the trucking industry?
0: I've spent 11 years here at GTS, and um, I haven't seen anything like it myself. And the people I talk to who are more experienced around me share similar stories. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things but this is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event i've dealt with in my time here
2: diesel isn't cheap at the moment if you're talking about a truck going to brisbane having to do an extra 400 kilometers there must be huge additional costs placed on the business
0: there are significant commercial impacts there's there's no doubt about it the fuel price in this country still really volatile Um, so we've got to be agile with fuel levies those sorts of things but the additional um, distances traveled now we we have to start to share some of that cost we can't absorb that as a business and the rest of the industry will be doing the same thing so it's just another another challenge we have to face but um, we can't wear it all unfortunately.
2: Having the roads open is one thing but having them in a condition that you can probably travel on is another. What kind of situations are your drivers coming across and are they documenting that for you along the way
0: they are uh, within reason Um, we we ask them to focus on their tasks solely but um, all of our trucks are fitted with um, front front facing and rear facing cameras so we can assess um, road conditions at from a live live level which is fantastic um, with uh, with with that feature Um, but the, the images we see of potholes parts of roads missing uh, it's fairly confronting and for it's it's quite unsafe for a lot of road users. Um, so we just try and do our best, but our average, average speeds of our vehicles are well down and, and that's by design, just to do the job safely.
2: In normal conditions, freight would also be moved by rail. Is much of that still happening at the moment, given that some train lines have also been affected by flooding?
0: Rail is severely impacted at the moment and a lot of this country's... Freight does operate via rail, uh, predominantly to the west, but rail tracks are really, really impacted and we've, we've seen a big demand for our services to head to the west um, where normally the rail providers would head. So yeah, there's big impacts.
2: This would normally be a hugely busy time for you as companies get ready for Christmas. They obviously need to have stock on their shelves to sell. Is that putting you under even more pressure
0: we're 25 working days from Christmas Day. So this industry is very, very much under the pump at this time of the year in a normal operating time. Our customers are fantastic. We have great relationships and partnerships. Um, they, they allow us additional travel times, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the whole network is disrupted. So the, from us um, to a distribution center right down to the um, supermarket shelf, everyone's feeling the pinch. But um, yeah, we've got our morale still quite high. There's some fantastic people in our organisation and the industry uh, who are all working very hard. But, yeah, some people are getting a little bit tired, but we'll be right. We'll get there.
5: GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager, Ben Fenner, very optimistic there at the end. He was speaking with Kelly Hollingworth.
0: From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, Australia
5: grows around a of the world's wool, which makes us the biggest producers in the world. It's a source of national pride, but just like our iron ore, very little Australian wool is processed at mills here. It's just 5%. At the moment, most of it is shipped to China for processing. But Wool Producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes says the past few years have shown just how vulnerable industry is being so reliant on one country, and they're looking to try and change it.
3: We started to become aware of a number of risks to which our industry was exposed through being very reliant on exports for most of our product leaving the country in a greasy form. And there were risks that could come about from um, the likes of an emergency animal disease, such as foot foot and mouth disease, or disruptions to market access, either through the imposition of tariffs or quotas or non-tariff barriers.
4: We were also talking a lot about freight costs in 2020 as well, Adam. Did the industry have to cope with a, quite a, a big increase in the freight bill?
1: Yeah,
3: absolutely. And also, one of the challenges that we faced as well, Joe, was the freight availability, where a lot of vessels were either becoming consolidated and dropping off some key export ports, or um, shipping slots were shipping by up to six or eight weeks. And the flow on impact has been that there's been a significant extension of the number of days to customer. Oh that we're seeing of Australian wool to get to um, further downstream consumers or to the point of retail.
4: If we look at that supply chain now, what happens to our wool? We shear it, it goes into the bale, it goes onto a ship. Then what happens to it?
3: Yeah, so currently, Joe, we've got processing capacity in Australia to scour or carbonise about 5% of the wool that we produce. The remainder of that wool is exported in a greasy form. And around about 80 percent of the wool that we produce goes to China for scouring and carbonising and further on processing the remainder goes to a mix of other markets um, including primarily European markets and India and that's where we saw some I guess risk mitigation in terms of our exposure to some of those trade barriers and freight disruptions um, through undertaking early stage processing here so effectively around about 50 to 60% of the wool that's in a pack that's exported in the greasy form isn't actually usable wool in the textile sense. It's made up of grease or lanolin, vegetable matter and soil. So there's some instant freight efficiencies if we can undertake scouring and carbonisation here. Probably just as well further to that, Joe, we've seen uh, two instances in the last three or four years where our wool-producing colleagues in South Africa... Have experienced a fairly significant disruption to their market access as a result of foot and mouth disease incursions.
4: Sure. So you're looking at potentially halving the amount that you'd be sending in freight, but also guaranteeing that you could still send it even if there was an FMD incursion in Australia.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the the scouring process actually mitigates the risk of some um, emergency animal diseases like foot and mouth disease. So. Instantly, if we had capacity to process more, somewhere upwards of 5% of the wool that we currently produce, which is where we currently sit, then our risk exposure would reduce in a proportionate manner.
4: This report looks at the numbers in a very much a preliminary setting. You need to do more, a deeper dive, if you like, into the numbers. But when you think about the cost of labour in Australia versus the cost of labour in a country like China, does it stack up to do that early processing, that scouring and carding and combing in Australia when when you can compare to the, the cost of doing that overseas?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And probably one thing to make listeners aware of is that this report that we've recently released is part one of what was initially proposed to government as a two-stage process. And effectively, if we think of this as being the, the macroeconomic analysis, so we've looked at Does it stack up commercially? Is it commercially competitive? And what are the benefits beyond just the direct benefits to the wool industry in terms of jobs creation and increase to GDP? As part of this analysis, we've actually looked at independently the wet early stage processes. So that's the scouring and carbonising and then the dry early stage processes. So the carding and combing. And what we've found is that the higher labour costs in Australia are largely offset with the freight efficiencies that we achieve through, as we discussed before, exporting less um, undesirable or less usable product. But when we start to get onto the dry processing, we actually see that we're perhaps on direct commercial terms, not quite as competitive as some of those lower cost of labour markets. So perhaps what we're looking at doing in the next phase is pursuing what an altered supply chain could look, where perhaps scouring and carbonising is decoupled from top making, um, and top making is actually attached to spinning operations.
4: Under this system, would you be looking at doing all of our wool in Australia, or would you still be sending some unprocessed wool to China? What sort of volumes have you been looking at?
3: So we looked at processing up to 50% of the wool that we produce as part of this feasibility study, and I guess part of the reason for that being that we looked at what happens with our wool when it's exported and actually... 50% of the wool that we export to China is retained and consumed within the country through their vertically integrated models. And the remainder is processed to various stages along the wool supply chain and exported to third countries. So as a starting point, we looked at varying options from increasing a moderate increase to a a high level increase up to 50% of the wool that we produce and what impact that might have in terms of risk (laughs) mitigation to our industry.
4: Do you see any potential for wool that's been processed in Australia to attract some sort of price premium? I imagine it increases the traceability of that wool, that kind of thing. Is there opportunity
3: there? We know that sustainability and supply chain transparency are of increasing importance to consumers of all agri-products and most certainly wool. So I think what we would be able to offer downstream consumers is assurance that the product they're receiving is 100% Australian wool. And we'd also be able to offer assurances around um, some of the credentials of perhaps... Um, some processing innovation that could be adopted using renewable energy, decreased water consumption and that sort of thing would all add to the story of sustainability that is Australian wool.
5: Adam Dawes there speaking to Joe Prendergast about that recent report commissioned by Wool Producers Australia. It was done up by Deloitte Access Economics and it was looking into the viability of early stage processing of up to half the nation's wool clip right here in Australia. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. I'm your host, Kit Mocken, and it's been great to have your company. For more on that story that you just heard there and many of the other stories that we played today on Countrywide, you can head along to the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au slash news slash rural. Bye for now.
4: an ABC podcast.